0: Good morning, friends, and welcome to chapel worship today. We are so glad that you have joined us here in Martin Chapel and those who are joining us virtually. And as we begin all of our chapels, we say this is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. We are pleased this morning to have one of our visiting candidates for the New Testament position to be sharing a message and a scholarly presentation with us today. As we center ourselves for worship, let us stand as we sing hymn number 223, Blessed Be the God of Israel. from the Gospel according to St. Luke. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. Her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown his great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. On the eighth day they came to circumcise the child, and they were going to name him Zechariah after his father. But his mother said, no. He is to be called John. They said to her, None of your relatives has this name. Then they began motioning to his father to find out what name he wanted to give him. He asked for a writing tablet and wrote, His name is John. And all of them were amazed. Immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue freed, and he began to speak, praising God. Fear came over all their neighbors, and all these things were talked about throughout the entire hill country of Judea. All who heard them pondered them and said, What then will this child become? For indeed the hand of the Lord was with him. Then his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke this prophecy. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has looked favorably on his people and redeemed them. He has raised up a mighty Savior for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke through the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we would be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. Thus he has shown the mercy promised to our ancestors And has remembered his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our ancestor Abraham to grant us that we, being rescued from the hands of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways to give knowledge of salvation to his people by the forgiveness of their sins. By the tender mercy of our God, the dawn from on high will break upon us to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. This is God's word for us, God's people. Thanks be to God.
1: Good morning. I'm happy to introduce Dr. Timothy Reardon, candidate for the New Testament faculty position at Easter Mennonite Seminary and the Bible, Religion, and Theology program. Dr. Reardon currently serves as an affiliate assistant professor of New Testament at Fuller Theological Seminary and as adjunct faculty in Biblical and Religious Studies at Azusa Pacific University and as pastor of leadership and preaching at Pasadena Mennonite Church. He earned his Ph.D. with distinction in 2019 from Fuller in New Testament studies. His teaching experience is varied with classes that include book studies in both Greek and English, biblical interpretation and hermeneutics, New Testament survey courses. He writes in his cover letter that his courses are designed to be formational, helping students to become more incisive and responsible readers of the biblical texts and of themselves. In his teaching, diverse perspectives, with an emphasis on non-dominant voices and in hermeneutical privilege for the oppressed, are essential. His published research critiques the modern political, conceptual, and theological impositions that perpetuate a problematic reading of the Bible, and argues instead for a broadly political salvation that centers God's overcoming of oppressive powers and systems, manifesting justice, peace, and reconciliation within the world, and reconciling heaven and earth. He called this cosmic jubilee yesterday, and uh, the search committee liked that term. For several years, he served as a pastor at Pasadena Mennonite, where he gained practical experience working toward diversity, equity, and inclusion while confronting pressing issues such as immigration, housing, the doctrine of discovery, sexuality, and white supremacy. Dr. Weirden's presentation today is titled Luke 1, 67-79, The Benedictus as Test Case for Theopolitical Interpretation. We'll have time at the end for questions from the audience, both in Martin Chapel here and online. Online participants, please use the chat function to ask your questions. Welcome, Tim.
2: Thank you very much. Good morning, everybody. It's it's great to be here with you. Um, Everyone has been very hospitable. It's been a whirlwind couple days, uh, but it's been wonderful to meet everybody. And I'm left with a good impression, though I'm exhausted. <laughs> uh, I had no idea I had written. I, I didn't remember that I had written such a great synopsis of my work. Thank you for reading that. Um, I appreciate that. Um, I'm mindful also that this is chapel, so I'm hoping by the end of it I will, I will turn into a uh, preaching register. Um, it'll take a little bit to get there, but hopefully we will, uh, if you are patient with me. A particularly interesting passage in Luke-Acts for political interpretation is the Benedictus, Zechariah's prophecy in Luke 1, 67 to 79, not simply because of its political language, but also because of its treatment by most critical commentators. The Benedictus is generally seen not as an opening political salvo, but as a representative relic of an outmoded physical and nationalistic salvation from which Luke quickly shifts To a more spiritual and eschatological one. The passage has become a site of contestation between discrete political and religious soteriologies. Scholars identify this shift from the physical and political to the spiritual and religious within the Benedictus's very structure. Where the first section's words of liberation in verses 68 through 75 give way to the second section's spiritual and personal and religious salvation, verses 76 to 79. Further, this shift is seen to mirror the gospel as a whole, as it moves from an archaic, particular, material world, evident in Luke's early chapters, toward a more proper, universal, spiritual conception. The primary warrant for this interpretation is the appearance of the Lucan phrase in verse 77, forgiveness of sins, a phrase that for these commentators seems to undo the political hold uh, that has held sway on Luke 1. So it is argued, Luke has added this phrase, forgiveness of sins, to an earlier source to free us from its political expectations. Um, To put it concisely, from my point of view, I do not agree. So that's what I want to tackle this morning. I want to explore both how the Benedictus is political and liberative and to consider some of the elements of the politics of its interpretation. Why this spiritualizing interpretation has taken hold. First, uh, I will argue that the Benedictus should in fact be read politically which means that I must somehow situate forgiveness of sins within that sort of reading. Second, I will suggest how this categorical distinction between religion and politics is not only anachronistic, as is commonly observed, but also how it participates in a larger modern discursive structuring of political power. And finally, I hope to tie that together with a reflection on the prophecy's ultimate phrase, the way of peace and what that means uh, in light of this political dynamic. So I should begin by defining a few terms, at least two. First, politics uh, should be rather uncontroversial, I think. I utilize the term politics to refer to um, not simply statecraft, but more broadly for the ordering of resources, bodies, relationships, and power in social space. Politics need not be violent— militaristic, or defined by states, a nuance that's often missing in some assumed conceptions of politics. The Benedictus can be political without assuming politics as usual. Second, I will often use the term spiritual, which can be a notoriously difficult term to define. Certainly, we may see the spirit in all things and spiritual realities touching all things and and is everywhere. Uh, But the way that I'm using it advisedly is to speak of a reductionist reality that is inner, subjective, not pertaining to the body, that has, for many, come to characterize, quote unquote, religion. That term we will handle in a a section or two. So turning to the text, the Benedictus is found at a key moment narratively within uh, Luke's gospel. Its positioning at the beginning gives it this pride of place in defining the narrative and framing expectations for what is to follow. And rhetorically, its generic shift into this song and then the the note that Zechariah has been filled with the Holy Spirit um, causes the reader to slow down and engage with the material and its projected authority. Luke 1 builds climactically to Jesus' birth at the outset of chapter 2. Um, And the Benedictus, which is right before chapter two, represents the final word before that climax, a definitional word, a word that situates the scene within a political tension, the appearance of Augustus and his census. This census, by the way, represents an uh, act of imperial domination, which was known to be onerous and to have sparked multiple revolts around the empire and other places, Notably, Acts later mentions Judas the Galilean's tax revolt, or census revolt, excuse me, while Gamaliel is at the same time comparing Jesus to Judas and another revolutionary named Thutis. Additionally, Luke's model reader was unlikely to miss the prophecy's ultimate word, Irene. It ends with peace, placing God's new activity in direct tension with a key element of Roman propaganda the Pax Romana. Indeed, Augustus was was that piece embodied. Also, Augustus' appearance is surrounded by references to uh, Jesus as a Davidic king, um, before in the Benedictus, the Davidic horn, Um, and then later an angel identifying Jesus as Savior, Messiah, and Lord, born in David's city, Savior and Lord being terms for uh, Caesar as well. Um, and not to mention during Jesus' birth that David is mentioned twice. He's going to Nazareth because it is David's city, because they are from the, the lineage of David. It's very important. Over and over it's mentioned. And then uh, a theme that's built on throughout Luke Acts in Luke's Christology. This tension is palpable. As, the pro- uh, as for the prophecy itself, the political nature of that first section is rarely ever questioned. Some have even compared it to the violent Qumranic war hymns. Uh, Nevertheless, I think this comparison is less than apt. Uh, The Benedictus makes no mention of violence, despite the expectations for liberation, and we're not actually told how God saves them from enemies other than by the Messiah. Their shared language is actually rather generic, and the Qumranic war hymns' persistent violence, such as the description of God's redemption through, quote, the blood of guilty corpses, is not anything I recognize in the Benedictus. Thank God. Um, positively, God's action is described in embodied and political terms, such as visitation, episceptimi, liberation, lutrosis, through a Davidic king, remembrance of covenant, and rescue from the hands of enemies, echoing themes of, uh, exodus and covenant faithfulness. Moreover, these themes are not restricted to the Benedictus or Luke's early chapters, but recur throughout Luke-Acts, uh, that might actually require more argument from me, but, um, uh, I have a, a book that <laughs> talks about it, um, and you can go there, and I'm happy to answer more questions about it. Um, nevertheless, the second section is deemed to reframe refrain the whole in disembodied spiritual terms. As I noted, forgiveness of sins plays the key role, uh, but to clear some ground, it might be helpful to address some of the language that could be thought to spiritualize this second section as well. Mercy, for instance, eleos, occurs five times in Luke 1, with two of these occurrences in the Benedictus, two in Mary's song, and one we saw at the beginning of our reading, talking about the mercy of God uh, to Elizabeth. In verse 78, the reader sees eleos, mercy, and is drawn back to the mercy described in verse 72, related explicitly to God's covenant remembrance. In verse 78, uh, mercy modifies splachnon, which is a word I love to say, uh, that means affection, referring to God's compassion, uh, which within this septuagintal idiom uh, refers to God's redemption for Israel, often implies that. So, for instance, in Isaiah 63:15, the septuagint using oitirmos, uh, which is interchangeable with Splonchnon. Uh, Isaiah appeals to God's mercy and compassion so that God might remember Israel and redeem the people from their adversaries, and then that goes on, that uh, that, uh, happens through verses 15 through 19. These are real material adversaries. Uh, The promise, uh, the prominence of light imagery as well is also of interest. Uh, The nearest antecedents for this language is also from Isaiah. Where it refers not to inner illumination so much as national deliverance, God's justice, and freedom from captivity. Um, nine two uh, between the Septuagint would be two one, but nine uh, two or nine one, uh, but nine two. And here's uh, what I could fit on the slide. Uh, for example, mentions darkness and the shadows of de- and the shadow of death. Clearly, though, addressing Israel's hope for collective redemption. And when light shines on them, we see uh, not that they are illumined, but the oppressor's rod is broken in verse 3. War ceases in verse 4. And a Davidic king brings peace and justness, dikiosune, in verses 5 through 6. Like the liberated community, I think, of Luke one seventy five, uh, which is in holiness and justness. Similarly, in Isaiah 42, 7, those sitting in darkness refers not to those in spiritual or psychological anguish, but captives sitting in physical prison. National political deliverance dominates the Benedictus in this second section as well, and all of early uh, Luke um, that we have considered. So, um, and in general. Luke's model reader, moving from left to right, would need to work against the grain to interpret forgiveness of sins outside that idiom, especially since this precise language is itself language of nas- national restoration. So John's mission is cast um, in terms of, uh, as preparation in terms of Malachi 3.1 and Isaiah 43. Um, here's verses 2 through 3. Um, Isaiah 40 is a key text proclaiming an end to Israel's exile, an announcement made in terms Of sin forgiveness. In fact, the Septuagint, which Luke would likely be using, um, instead of saying her penalty is paid, we see her sin has been released or forgiven. However, what is at times underappreciated, I think, is also the role that Daniel 9 plays uh, in shaping Luke's connection between national uh, redemption and forgiveness of sins in Luke 1. Note that Luke's primary divine messenger is Gabriel, who announces John's and Jesus' births. Uh, Gabriel appears only twice in the Old Testament, both of them in Daniel at 8.16 and 9.21. In Daniel 9, Daniel prays concerning Israel's collective sins that have led to national destruction and exile, with the presumption that the forgiveness of those sins is an integral element to Israel's restoration, to God moving on behalf of the nation. Gabriel approaches Daniel during the evening sacrifice, a scene that is reminiscent of Zechariah in the temple at the beginning of Luke. Having heard Daniel's prayer, Gabriel declares a time of atoning for the people and Jerusalem so that their exile is in itself a cleansing, apalepho, of sin before communal restoration. The end of exile comes with communal sin forgiveness, which is precisely what the Benedictus declares. So Luke does not isolate this theme here either. Rather, sin forgiveness and national deliverance remain consistent in Luke Acts. Luke's use of forgiveness of sins is built upon this notion of Israel's restoration. Now, this last point that I made is really important because typically commentators will note instances where Jesus forgives individual sins um, or sins that seem to be interrelational or specifically just between God and persons, claiming that this is the base of the notion of forgiveness in Luke Acts. Nevertheless, the relationship as I see it is reversed. These instances uh, of, of individual forgiveness are indeed still proof of Israel's forgiveness as a whole. Uh, and the inbreaking political reality of God's kingdom. Indeed, forgiveness of sins is most often found within corporate contexts, even national redemption, being persistently related to Israel's specific contexts, the Davidic Messiah, the prophet like Moses in the Exodus, and Israel's specific repentance. John's baptism makes known that this forgiveness that was proclaimed to Daniel, and now Luke is is claiming is now available, um, is available in repentance. Yet this forgiveness is part of a kingdom that is breaking in through like a mustard seed, which may be, I think, why commentators um, like disciples traveling the road to Jerusalem might be disappointed and assume that Zechariah's language here was merely spiritual. There's certainly no reason, I think, to force forgiveness into that sense, though. But even more than that, Luke's forgiveness proves socio-politically creative. Jesus' declarations of forgiveness order the world and social imagination. So the forgiveness of the paralyzed man in Luke 5 or the woman at Simon the Pharisee's house in Luke 7 are not instances of merely a vertical salvation— but a manifestation of a jubilee forgiveness release that removes stigma and restructures social space. The leader's reaction comes not simply because Jesus makes a proclamation about a moral spiritual debt, but because of the way it restructures the social and cosmic order. For all these reasons, it seems to me quite unlikely that Luke has reductively spiritualized the political sense of the Benedictus. Rather, it stands as a further echo of national hope that traverses through Mary's song, across Zechariah's prophecy, the triumphant song of the angelic army, and John's baptism to Jesus' jubilee manifesto and ministry. Moreover, it would be difficult to see how a model reader would see it differently from my perspective. So then, why has this reductively spiritual translation uh, interpretation, um, depoliticized interpretation, largely won the day? One reason seems to be a failure of the prophecy's expectations when read through a narrower political lens. But more foundationally, beyond this, I think, that many of these interpretations betray an imagination and politics framed by Western, Enlightenment, and modern discursive categories that function to discipline space according to certain ideal configurations of power, at least in the West. Most applicable is the category, quote unquote, religion, a necessarily spiritual, subjective, disembodied, and immaterial reality Um, defining religion is a political move itself, has been a political move, designed to secure a certain type of politics. And I'll argue here, a racialized politics. Uh, Interpreted through this category, the Benedictus serves those political ends, a colonization of the text for colonization. Now, by... The construction of religion as a category. I know that can be um, controversial. I do not mean that God or faith or religious practices or devotion were created by modernity. Rather, I am referring to the peculiarly modern category, religion, um, that is understood um, as a product of the Enlightenment and modernity, that is understood variously as personal belief, ultimate concern, and encounter with some numinous reality— a supposed transhistorical and transcultural universal that depends on a division of metaphysical space defined primarily as a negation of the positive concepts political rationality the physical world and the secular in particular this however is not a category at home in antiquity in the greco-roman world cities peoples, nations, certainly had gods that they believed in, though belief and faith as ultimate concern were not the central elements of their cultic practices. These practices were generally vibrant communal, social, and civic enterprises that pervaded and structured all levels of society. Nevertheless, modern religious scholarship has tended to retroject the category religion Uh, which some have called a Christianization, uh, and imposed this category on the past. And whatever its heuristic value as a category, fundamentally it changes the nature of what is observed when it's used and when it's imposed. So Simon Price, uh, for one, who does a lot of work in the imperial cult and ancient religion, writes in one place, the influence of prejudice and the imposition of culture-bound categories, especially ones derived from Christianity, are a perennial problem in the study of the imperial cult. The most pervasive Christianization is our assumption that politics and religion are separate areas. I would probably argue that this is not endemic to Christianity, um, but that's not my point right now. Uh, This is not merely an anachronism as I said, which is often mentioned, but a disciplining of person's history and sacred texts. The pioneering work of religion scholars such as Jonathan Z. Smith, Talal Assad, Russell McCutcheon, and Tomoko Masuzawa has shown that the category religion developed largely in the West in tandem with its, its uh, brother or sister, sibling, partner, uh, the secular, as a way of consolidating state and civic power. So John Locke, for instance, maintained, um, for example, that not only was religion relegated to, quote-unquote, soul maintenance, but also that the church as institution must be subsumed under state authority, enabling not only a uh, distinction between loyalty to God and to the state, with priority, of course, given to the state, but also inscribing a division within the human person itself, the body... Um, belongs to the state, and the soul belongs to God. This dualism, inscribed on the social body, participated with other such hierarchical disciplinary oppositions, such as reason and emotion, uh, public-private, culture-nature, male-female, white-black, etc. J. Cameron Carter, for one, has demonstrated the deep racial logic to such oppositions, creating a racial, patriarchal, and eurocentric sociopolitical order. The opposition's civilization nature, black, white, and religion politics, for example, would be particularly helpful and were in shaping colonial imagination. European powers were able to restructure and profit from how people related to and utilized their land. Um, the peoples themselves were deemed conquerable based on racial hierarchy, and the organizing authority structures, metaphysics, and cosmology of a people, uh, with all of its political import, was isolated to the religious sphere and replaced by Western conceptions of space and uh, secular colonial government. It may be pure coincidence that Luke's supposed move towards universalization, depoliticization, and uh, reductively spiritual uh, religion, as I see it aligns in many respects with this Enlightenment project. Perhaps Luke is an allegorizer on the level of Plato. Maybe that is another question that we should ask. But even that is difficult, I think, to sustain from the text. It seems to be that this spiritualizing move at least legitimates a colonial enterprise. And certainly, that provides a reasonable explanation for what is going on. Two issues uh, beyond that, though, also point me in this direction. The first is how this interpretation inscribes a legitimating history. Interpreting the text, especially a sacred text, as embodying this move, uh, this enlightenment move, uh, from this, uh, this archaic past to a spiritual religion, from the political to spiritual salvation, makes sacred this modern discursive power structuring. The second flows directly from it the distinctly anti-Judaic terms within which the historical development is presented. These generally implied, though at times explicitly stated, whereby Luke and the Benedictus include an archaic, orientalized, embodied salvation that transgresses the disciplined boundaries of religion in order to spiritualize it and situate it properly within its religious boundaries. These articulations are often... Uh, dependent on the binary Jewish-Christian, whereas Judaism becomes the primordial darkness from which the Jesus movement emerges and distinguishes itself. This is the history that's told behind it. For instance, Darrell Bach contrasts uh, what he calls the Christian hope of the Benedictus, understood as this corrected spiritual salvation, to quote, contemporary Judaism, which tended to emphasize earthly physical elements of salvation, end quote. Or Raymond Brown, similarly, when writing on the early chapters of Luke, explicitly contrasts what he sees as Jewish expectation from, the more, properly early, from more proper early Christianity. And somewhat differently, from a different angle, J. Uh, Massingbert of Ford, uh, discerning that the Benedictus cannot be spiritualized, argues instead that it and Mary's song were only included to be shown as erroneous and replaced and to be rejected uh, by the universal and peace-oriented Jesus. Nevertheless, returning to um, Carter, he notes that it is precisely this distinction, this binary uh, Jew-Christian, that defines the racial logic of modern Western thought. And such formulations, when imposed onto the past, offer legitimation for that foundational boundary, self-fulfilling. Carter writes, The Jews were the mirror in which the European, and eventually Euro-American, Occident uh, could religiously and thus racially conceive itself through the difference of Orientalism. Having racialized Jews as a people of the Orient, and thus Judaism as a religion of the East, Jews were then deemed inferior to Christians of the Occident or the West. Um, And later, in his estimation, he adds, Judaism was a material religion that, quote, enslaved them to the material empirical world. The manifestation of this dynamic in the interpretation of the Benedictus may, of course, be unintentional from our critics, but that is not the point. The underlying logic, I think, is clearly there, and Luke has been made to author this separation and racialized logic. Here is an interpretive politics that inscribes a Western disciplinary structure onto a sacred text, historically and divinely legitimating its organization of power in racialized terms. It should surprise no one that this near universal consensus concerning a spiritualized salvation has often been coupled, has been coupled also with a, until recently, universal determination of Luke as politically deferential world powers so that some scholars even note that Mary and Joseph's journey to Bethlehem uh, for the census demonstrated what good Roman subjects they were. With all this in mind I want to tie this together with a brief reflection on Zechariah's ultimate word which is to guide our feet in the way of peace and perhaps this will fulfill uh, the chapel portion for the morning we'll see. Finishing as it does, the Benedictus highlights peace, arene, its ultimate word. The dawn visits positively to guide our feet in the way of peace. But as we have noted, this brings with it a tension with Augustus' appearance. Nevertheless, for Luke, this is not a tension between equals, competing for lordship. Rather, as Cavin Rowe writes, Jesus simply is Lord and Caesar isn't. It's the message. We've already introduced the dynamics of the Pax Romana and the Pax Christi, but it is worth saying a little bit, just a, a bit more. Roman peace was defined by violence. The end of violence comes by the subjugation of violence. With more violence. The end of, uh, yeah, Rome made m- memorials to its own violence. For instance, Paul Zanker notes that the panel on the Pacis, the altar of peace in Rome, portraying the Pax Augusta, is set opposite a picture of the goddess Roma enthroned on a mound of armor, which is uh, quite violent. Imagine all of the, the people conquered to create that mound. And the Ara Pacis itself was situated within the field of Mars, the god of war, um, an entire field dedicated to that god of war. Gerardo Zampaglioni writes, almost all Roman writers agreed that spreading peace among humankind meant subjecting other peoples to Roman dominion. The person of Augustus was the divine guarantee of this violent subjection. So, whose peace does the Benedictus point to? Can the Pax Christi and the Pax Romana live in harmony? This is an attractive interpretation, I think, for those who do have power. Such a strategy just might be able to inscribe this power onto the text so that Roman violence can undergird following the path of Jesus? To what extent does the emergence of Caesar at the outset of Luke 2 represent colonizing interpretations, the overcoming of a needing-to-be-tamed Orientalism, or how much does this quote-unquote peaceful order of imposed violence appeal to a whiteness, for instance, that thrives on the same? Certainly it seems possible, if not dominant that the racial logic of such spiritual interpretations enables a violent ordering of the world. And it seems equally important to me that the Benedictus then call us instead to see the eruption and disruption that comes from a counter-narrative amid the assumed powers of the world. To do this, the tension has to be recovered between the powers that be, Caesar, and the way of peace that leads through the mission of Jesus of good news to the poor, through the cross, and into the resurrection. And from my perspective, the political interpretation and maintenance of this tension is also the most natural reading of the text, which is convenient. And if I'm permitted to read the narrative of Luke-Acts through this Benedictus, it moves beyond the resurrection, elevating such a political and embodied counter-narrative uh, into, uh, into Acts, one shaped by Jesus' jubilee, proclamation of God's kingdom that breaks through from below uh, unexpectedly without Caesar-like imposition, from without as the wilderness and from the least as a mustard seed with a reordered economy to which forgiveness is essential As a creative reality of that kingdom, this points beyond the resurrection to the uh, the to Pentecost, where God's Spirit pours out not in in a homogenizing display of universal language, uh, of an imposed peace or uniformity, but an affirmation of diversity in concert whose high point in Jerusalem is a community of koinonia with all things in common. And more than that, I think it it pushes even to Acts 15. I think it pushes all the way to the end, but in Acts 15, where the unity of the church is found not in affirmation of, uh, not in subsuming the nations under a single national identity or set of practices, but an affirmation of difference and welcoming in that difference under the Davidic tent composed of multiple peoples, making no distinction, Peter says, between us and them. So I've gone a bit uh, far afield in these last couple paragraphs, and I made a few comments that I would surely be wise to support with more thorough exegesis, um, and I think I have it. But it is also a reading through the lens of this Benedictus and this piece. Reading the Benedictus as a counter-narrative intention legitimates a turn toward the world— And ourselves in the world uh, with a lens formed by a liberative reality that erupts and disrupts from amid the structuring powers that be the world as it is and it frees us to deconstruct and recreate or to participate in God's deconstruction and recreation coming from the wilderness at the margins and embodied in communities of Holiness and justice, as it says in Luke one seventy four 74 74-75, to serve God in solidarity and hope, manifesting a new life and way of being together, breaking forth amid Caesar's world. Certainly, this is a lofty picture, but one I think that should shape our social imagination, one that we move towards, one that we seek to participate in. The Benedictus' invocation of peace points us to the life of Jesus, crucified by this Roman power, as the one who guides our feet in the way of peace. And to characterize peace as a way presents it, of course, as a journey and as a means and not simply an end. Indeed, as a journey of community seeking to serve God in holiness and justness, for the Messiah to guide our feet in this way, suggests that the way of peace is embodied, that it is social, our feet, feet embodied, right? And defined by activity, physicality, formation. Though the Pax Romana is violence subduing violence, the Pax Christi is peace journeying toward peace, holiness, and justice. All of this is sociopolitical and theological, The theological contributes to a political restructuring defined by God's peace. A theopolitical interpretation of the Benedictus' questions, the impositions of discursive power, elevates its critique of oppressive systems and opens up the text to be seen in a liberative light, not simply within the same old politics, but one that is shaped by inhabiting the theological world of the gospel. That's all I have.
1: Well, thank you, Dr. Reardon. Are there questions, either from Martin or um, online, or comments?
3: Thanks, Dr. Reardon. I I, want to ask a really basic New Testament 101 question. I think it's a pretty basic question. I think it's also a really big question. Okay. Um, So about a third of the way through, you asked the question, why this reductive move in interpretation? And you gave two possibilities, but you only talked about one. So the first possibility for the move from a political to a spiritualized interpretation is just the failure of the prophecy's expectation. Hmm. The second is the sort of misunderstanding of politics that then you sort of went through. You want to say a little bit about how what you think of the first option is that the, is that a misreading right. that it was a failure, or you just want to say a little bit about why that option is closed to you, or maybe it's not, maybe,
2: well, right, right, and that's, I think, um, there is a, there is a couple sections in there where I I say, and this continues throughout Luke Acts, but then I don't have space or don't provide, right, um, that discussion right here, uh, I have elsewhere. Um, well, I mean, the first, the first reason is because I think that um, the what I would call the model reader of this text, Luke's model reader, unless they have some sort of presupposition towards a spiritualizing reading, the milieu of the whole thing is political and speaks of this kind of national physical deliverance. Uh, and if we go to the Benedictines, and scholars agree on that. It's just forgiveness of sins that causes them to shift. Um, they see all of the language as it, as it moves throughout. Um, but they see this, oh, this is a particularly Lucan phrase. And that's actually really important. This phrase, forgiveness of sins, is a phrase that is distinctly Lucan. Luke uses it more in his two works. Luke also writes more of, New Test- or more of the New Testament than anyone else. I always like to throw that in there. Um, but he, uh, this distinct phrase he uses more than anyone else combined. Uh, and I think it, it points to this reality uh, but so people will say, well, then obviously this is talking about some sort of um, pre-structured hymn that he's inserted this into. Uh, I, I, it doesn't matter to me if this is a pre-structured hymn that he's inserted this into because I'm reading it narratively. I have the, what I have is that text. And then in that text, in that context, if I'm a reader in that, in that situation coming to that text, I don't know how I would, how I would read that in another way based on all of the setup that he gives, all of the the, um, allusions to other texts, uh, near citations of other texts that talk about forgiveness of sins in terms of national restoration, um, it would be a massive shift given the way that he's characterizing it. Now, perhaps he's doing that. And so what people will do is they'll point to later uses of forgiveness of sins. Um, One, of course, if you're reading from left to right, you haven't encountered those later... um, uses of forgiveness of sins. However, if you're Theophilus and you've already been trained in, you know, this is just adding to your faith, as we see in, in Luke 1, maybe that's a presupposition, which is a, was a possibility. But when I look at all of the uses of forgiveness of sins as they play out through Luke Acts, there are instances of individual salvation, which is we talk about um, the woman at Simon's house in Luke 7. These are actually the two primary, the woman at Simon's house, woman at Simon's house in Luke 7. And um, the paralytic in Luke five, but I don't think that those are even just personal. I think, I, as I talked about, it's a reordering, reordering of social order. But if you look at the rest of them, most of them occur in these situations that are explicitly con- uh, connected to Israel's uh, Isra- uh, Israel-centric uh, contexts, um, Israel's restoration, uh, the uh, Moses and the Exodus, and so. Even there, it seems to me that it moves in a different direction. Uh, I think that I think that the primary, and this is what commentators, and I know this from reading the commentators, the primary reason is though that we don't see a physical liberation that looks like the Exodus in Luke Acts, and I would argue that that, physical, that political liberation is happening and it's be taking up space within the world, it just happens in a much different way than people, in that mustard seed way than people expect. So it shouldn't be, it isn't spiritualized and it's not pushed to the end times. Um, that it's happening now and it's not complete, but it is, it's taking up space within the world. That's a, that is a very foundational question, so I appreciate that. A,
1: a question from, from the chat, can you read that? Yeah. yeah. Uh, Marcy Frederick asks, how does your use of the word kingdom, if I hear you correctly, maintain the political valence of kingdom slash realm slash rule slash empire, which it replaces?
2: Uh, I can't remember who it is that I cited from. I I take this from uh, 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 Latinx theologies of liberation uh, that have, for different reasons, recommended that. Um, have recommended that reading. I do think that there is an importance for, I understand that the, the note, this is what I understand about this, this term, is that I understand the notion of emphasizing the king aspect of it in terms of the political reality. I might actually need that question again, because I, I think I was responding <laughs> to something else, and I just want to make yeah. sure I, I get it yeah. right.
1: How does your use of the word kingdom maintain the political valence mm. of kingdom, realm, rule, empire, right. which it replaces?
2: Right. Um, I mean, I think the, the kingdom itself is, a, to describe it as a kingdom, it's one, embracing the kind of familial language that Jesus himself uses, um, and it is a social order and necessarily a political order in that sense. Um, and then I think it actually probably more, um, it, what it, it may, because you're using a different term, um, kind of muddle the, the, the tensive comparison with the kingdoms of the world, but I don't think so when you say kingdom, I think that it it brings that to mind. So um, uh, I'm just talking to you, Emily, as if you were the one that asked the question. And um, so I I think that that's there, and I also think it brings out another aspect that's really crucial to the understanding of the kind of social economy of what the the kingdom or the kingdom is uh, I what I've heard from some people is that it obscures the notion that well there's a king of the kingdom and I think that that's right but there's also a socio-political body of the kingdom that's created and I think that Jesus is very especially in Luke who does the sermon on the plain instead of on the mount or right I mean not to denigrate Matthew I always hate when people have to denigrate other gospels to make their gospels look good the when their preferred gospel uh, but so I, I think it just makes a lot of sense within the Lutheran context as well
1: Um, Lovely presentation, Dr. Reardon. I appreciate your exegesis and your more politicized interpretations of the text. For an institution like EMU, what might be some possible implications of this reframing of the text?
2: Uh, Well, it's great. I mean, I think that it, well, I mean, I think that the first thing is that it, well, for an institution like EMU, Maybe some of this work is, <laughs> I say this in the Anabaptist tradition, some of this work is being done, that there is this kind of tense of political reality, but um, it does speak to an awareness, I think, of the way that our, uh, what can be racialized interpretations of the past, um, legitimate our present, and legitimate how we construct ourselves. And so what I think it is, is a call to an awareness of who we are as persons, to um, to a better reconstruction in terms of uh, the reality that God lays out um, in this new social social world, Um, that that becomes more aware of the power dynamics that structure who we are and the ways that uh, we read the text. And what becomes really important there is that we, we must then be critical of the ways that we read the text without just assuming so that the text just doesn't become a legitimation, but becomes something that we encounter, that we have to you know, negotiate with, and is, um, is something that, that is open uh, to encountering us in different ways, especially as, the other thing I think is that, in terms of uh, the ways that we approach scripture and use it to, to um, legitimate the kind of life that we live in, in a community like this, um, is that the pri- one of the primary locuses of criticism is, the, is ourselves, in that process, um, because often we have such a, and this is work I think that everybody's uh, working on, uh, so many people are doing, uh, that understanding the ways that um, all of the things we think are just normal, everyday interpretations of reality, which is the way that people approach this forgiveness of sins passage, uh, are shaped by power. And so kind of uh, all of the racial dynamics, uh, whiteness. um, Whiteness is a very insidious kind of power that forms uh, Uh, that racializes people into a power structure and that cannot necessarily be distinguished from that that's the sort of thing that needs to be uh, deconstructed and so that's what I hear is happening um, a lot at EMU and I think that that's what needs to continue to to happen but then also that I think that it privileges voices that I said from the wilderness and the least like the mustard seed um, from the margins I think the wilderness also is a I've written about this also I think the wilderness also is a metaphor uh, for this kind of um, it's this almost anti civilization metaphor that's a positive reality uh, moving into uh, moving into kind of space that shakes it up and erupts and um, I think that any way that you can find yourself formed into being that kind of community um, in critical tension. And I don't just mean that negatively, though. There is a positive, right, there's a positive example and a positive reality that is, that, is, uh, that is explained for us to live into that I think is um, what's, import, what's important to focus on in terms of formation.
1: Thank you very much for your presentation. I'm wondering. Um, to what extent you believe yourself to be standing alone with your interpretation of this interpretation of Luke's Gospel and Mm. the Book of Acts, and to what extent you may have been setting up a straw man of prior Lucan um, interpretation. Is is Lucan interpretation uh, moving along with you?
2: Yeah, I mean, probably. I'll say uh, probably is moving. In terms, where I don't think that I've set up a straw man is in this particular phrase, forgiveness of sins. There is not a lot of movement at all in terms of that, in terms of spiritualization. So, even in passages that are very political, there's, I mean, in terms of political interpretation of Luke, I do not think I'm alone. And I think that there is a lot, there has been a, a good groundswell of that. I mean, ever since Richard Cassidy's work in the 70s, uh, Kevin Rowe has written good work, and there's lots of other uh, good work. Uh, That's being done on that. I don't think it's the majority of interpreters. I still think, um, and maybe it is, I think that uh, in general New Testament scholars uh, still will teach their intro to New Testament class and say that Luke is not concerned about politics or Luke is, you know, Luke is Plays down these things or i read the textbook for uh, for the undergrad class that i was teaching that talked about luke was concerned about uh, downplaying jesus as as king and it, which is just to me makes no sense because it's just the davidic christology all the way throughout and i remember konzelman makes this this comment about jesus coming into jerusalem where he says well and luke has obviously included a non-political use of the word king like they call out blessed is the king i was like that doesn't make any sense what a non-political, it, um, it, it doesn't make sense in that context. So I am very encouraged by the way that scholarship is moving um, in the direction of, of understanding a political interpretation of Luke. I think there's more room to be done on this specific phrase, forgiveness of sins. And I think that's mostly where I'm aiming my critique. And then, the thing, then I am most pointedly engaging with those that then spiritualize everything because of it.
3: Uh, I guess this is more of a, a context question relating to your discussion of kind of Orientalism, but I guess I would push back a little bit or want to know more about kind of you mentioned this Roman or and then kind of Neo-Western desire for uniformity. Um, and could you talk about that in the context of kind of other Near Eastern empires other than the Judaic one? Like what about the Hellenistic empire, Babylonian, Persian, Assyrian, that all have different forms of assimilationist uh, right. kind of pressure. Um, as opposed to the Lucan vision of diversity, and kind of today, now, do we think about an inverted Orientalism that we perceive the West as kind of this diverse place and the East right. as not, but anyhow, thanks.
2: So I would say that one of the main things I did, I was trying to be very careful in my language and not trying to say that the analog of, of, of forced uniformity as Orientalism, right, in that sense, is... Analogous to Rome the, the what I'm saying is that the violent the violent um, the violence that's conceived the violent peace that's that's being conceived within this text is of the same nature uh, with that we enforce uh, this kind of disciplinary uh, discursive power structure um, and but we I mean, we do see in terms of the the Hellenistic Empire uh, um, that that there was certain forced homogenizations of language that were imposed and um, I, I don't think, though, that in antiquity the um, what I don't think that the the level of forced homogeny and colonization in antiquity is anything compared to the way that that um, colonization happens within uh, the modern era, and so I I agree with your point that there is there is distinction with your pushback that there is distinction. Um, I think where that's where it's helpful to uh, to move into those discussions. One is when you're starting to realize the way that uh, modern space inscribes these kind of uh, legitimating discourses on the past in a way to then legitimate or kind of you know self-fulfilling understanding of of structures within the present, and um, and the that that analogy in itself I think is fruitful for a theopolitical reflection, Uh, the analogy of uh, this Pax Romana as violence imposing violence. Um, with more violence, right? Violence ending violence with more violence, um, and and I think there's an analogy there. And that's where we can see that sort of countercultural thing is that kind of cultural narrative is where um, we can, or counter narrative is where we can uh, kind of live into and reflect, and and apply and and deconstruct and all of those wonderful terms.
1: I imagine there are more, but I think we have to call a close. That's Please great. help me in thanking Dr. Reardon.
2: Thank you very much. Thank you.
0: As we prepare to go forth into our day, let us stand and sing hymn number 601, Lead Me, Guide Me. Let us walk each day with thee. Lead us, O Lord, lead us. Go in peace. Amen.